Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. I'm talking with CSU Associate Professor Damien Canduso. Damien is an award-winning sound designer who has worked in film, television, games, animation and music production. Some of his work features in highly recognisable movies like The Great Gatsby, Australia, The Lego Movie and The Happy Feet Movies. Damien lives in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales and is part of CSU's School of Communication and Creative Industries. So Damien, welcome to CSU Stories today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure and thank you for speaking with us. So Damien, you're an expert in sound design. You've worked on some amazing films and one of my favourites, The Great Gatsby. But when I'm watching a film, something I totally take for granted is the sound. I mean, you know, I just assume that all the pieces of that sound production work together to give me that lovely crisp hearing. What actually goes into making great sound design? So there's, there's a couple of things. Um, the first note I suppose I'd like to make is that if sound's done really well it actually goes quite unnoticed so that's normally the first sign so if, if, if something stands out then it means it's probably not designed that well <laughs> and could have been done better but when we're looking at a film um, yeah as, as you mentioned you, you take the soundtrack for granted and what a lot of people don't know is the, the soundtrack gets basically built from scratch so once the on, on location the cinematographer filming the scene, there's location sound people there and they're recording the dialogue. It then goes off to the picture editing um, department who then, you know, basically put the film together and get the sequences sorted and work on the narrative. That completed film then comes to the sound department where essentially we skip everything away and start from scratch with the soundtrack. The exception being is we'll try and use the location dialogue from the scene, but certainly anything that's not dialogue will be um, re-recorded and, and redone. So that includes all the wind and background sounds, so if there's traffic or if they're in a forest, all, all the weather elements get redone, all the footsteps get redone, all the body movements get redone. Then if there's vehicles, they all get you know, specifically created for the film. Weapons get created if it's a film with, with weaponry or if it's a period piece, you know, we'll go out and specifically record elements for the period. So it's an old film set 80 years ago. We might go out and record telephones or typewriters, things that... When you hear them, you know and associate that with the time period. So you will actually go out and record those specific sounds to pull them back into the film? Absolutely. So I'll um, use the film Australia as an example. All of the cows for that film were recorded in Wagga. And even some of the other exterior sounds were. I mean, some of them were authentic um, recordings from, not so much on set, but uh, a couple, you know, after the film crews moved off from the set, then uh, sound recorders may go back to those particular spots to record some of the atmospheres to get the environmental sounds. But um, yeah, some of them uh, are layered in in addition to that. So the cows were one of those examples. When I was living in Sydney, I did the film uh, Little Fish and I was after, we were doing um, one of the scenes towards the end where the, the main characters are inside a caravan and it's meant to be you know, in an isolated location, but being able to record that in Sydney was, you know, was difficult. So it took mm -hmm. us about two hours to get out of Sydney to be able to record these these sounds for the, for the caravan. Whereas, if I was living in Wagga at that point, you know, I could have done it within a five five minute radius. Quite quickly, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Oh, and so is there a lot of? Does it take a long time to get all of the sound right from when you get the film to when you deliver the final sound that goes along with that? And I suppose there would be some back and forth with 
I'm, I'm guessing the director or how do you, how's that creative collaboration go in terms of so they get the right feel? Because I imagine when you're watching film that has no sound, you don't really feel anything or understand what's going on in a lot of ways. So when I see the film, the, the director has sat with the picture editor and they've probably put in some temp sound effects and some, some music just to help elude with what they're trying to go for. Right. Um, and then when I, you know, when I receive that, then we strip that away and, and read work. Um, so you get a roadmap from them of what they're really looking yeah. for. Yeah. The other thing that happens is we'll have briefs with the director. So I did a horror movie, Better Watch Out, last year or the year before, and, you know, I flew to Sydney and, and sat with the director for a day and we went through the film, you know, scene by scene, talking about what they were after, looking what the overall arc of the film was going to be in relation to suspense and then how we could replicate that with sound. And then I'd talk to the composer to make sure that we weren't going to double up some of the jump scares and things like that. So they're, they're you know, it's, it's quite a collaborative experience when you're working on the, on the soundtrack to a film. And if it's a big film, there'll be a big sound crew, so we'll be bouncing our, our ideas and our sounds amongst each other. And if it's a smaller crew, then you know, we'll deal directly with the director. The well, biggest crew you've worked on, how many people have you had to work with? Uh, Happy Feet in Australia and Gatsby are all pretty big films yeah. where, you know, if you counted up every single person that worked you know, on, on the soundtrack in one way, shape or form, you know, it would be in excess of probably 20 people. Yeah. And you mentioned the horror film that you worked on. It, and you've obviously worked on, you know, period films and yes. and animated films and just totally different in terms of all of their sound requirements. Do you have a sort of favourite? Like, was it more fun working on the horror film versus oh, Happy yeah. Feet? Or? <laughs> oh, I, no, no, uh, they're all, they are all different. I do enjoy the horror films just because you get to play with suspense. But then again, I like working on some of the bigger budget films because they've got the budget for you to go out and do a lot of experimentation with creating, you know, your own sound. So one of the things I try to do is actually create. I mean, I, I go out and do a lot of recordings, but I actually create a lot of sounds almost from scratch using synthesizers or bits of recordings to create these new things. So I did a film called Daybreakers, which was set in the future. And it had cars from the future and these sort of like vampires from the future. So we're trying to work out you know, what vampires would sound like and then, you know, what their vehicles would sound like as well. So it's, it's not a matter of just going out and recording a car. So for that, that instance, I used, you know, a bit of a vacuum cleaner crossed with a bit of a dentist drill to sort of create this hybrid electric motor for, for the, these futuristic cars. I mean, what a brain you must have to even come up with that. <laughs> I'm going to try the dentist drill and then I'll look at this. It's actually the other way around. So normally I can watch the film and go, this is just, I'm, in my head I know what sound it needs to have to make it work. And then I've got to pull that apart to work out, okay, so what elements make up that particular sound? So is there a whirring sound? Is it a mechanical sound? You know, do I want to hear the sound of cogs? Do I want to hear the sound of um, elect, you know, uh, electric arcing or things like that? And then from that work out then how, how to create that sound. So another example is if I talk about the period piece, the one with the horses going over the bridge, in that particular film, the, all of, there's a lot of weaponry in are all muskets. And one of the shots is a close-up of the musket flint, you know, firing off the weapon and the bullet. So these old weapons are quite mechanical and I don't have access to a musket. So I had to look at this particular device and think, you know, if this is going to be on a cinema screen, this particular flint is going to probably be two feet tall. Often it's projected in the cinema. What can I create to make the illusion of this, you know, giant flint that's on this weapon? And in the end, I ended up using a mousetrap to, to, <laughs> you know, to make the snap. So it's sort of deconstructing the sound, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at imagining what it's going to sound like, yeah. it's going to sound like, and then you know, being able to then pull that apart to work out those particular elements. And, and in many instances, a sound isn't just one sound. So when you're seeing a sound on the screen, 
you know, it could be three, four, five, six different elements that make up that one particular sound. Kind of blows my mind because, again, as you said, when sound design is done well, it's something that you don't even notice. And it, it's just seamless and it's an experience that is just completely smooth. How did you get into sound design? How did you fall into this creative field? It's something I've probably been interested in since a child. So when I was very young, I wanted to get into being a music producer. Mm. And I, I came to CSU actually as a student back many years ago and then left CSU to pursue a job in the music industry in Sydney. And it just so happened that the studio that I worked at, they did music production, but they also did all of the animation for the Iron Gross animations like Blinky Bill and there was a couple other series that were going through at the time. Blinky Bill, uh, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> and Old Tom. And I just tended to like working on those productions more than working with bands and music. Don't get me wrong, I still like working with the odd band, but there was just something I liked about working with narrative and being able to play with people's emotions. And, and on those animations, that was being able to make people laugh as a result of your sounds. So how do you make a comic sound for when you know, a character runs into a wall or a fish swims into some rocks without being violent? You know, yeah, so you know. well, like a behind-the-scenes comedian with that, so we like that must be satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you're living in Wagga. Obviously, a lot of your work takes place in major cities. What influenced you to, to live regionally? And, I mean, have you moved around to different places and you ended up in Wagga or obviously you went to CSU when you were a student? So how did you sort of end up where you are now? No, I moved, I moved to Sydney purely to pursue the career in you know, sound design and music production. And I've done that for 10 years and I mean, I grew up as a child in the country and I just missed having space. So I moved back to Wagga thinking that I probably wouldn't work in film again, but in a weird sort of way, I've probably done more films now that I've been based here than what I was doing in Sydney, mainly because I'm sort of now more central to Melbourne as well. So I pick up Melbourne jobs, whereas you know, when I lived in Sydney, I only ever did Sydney jobs. You're kind yeah. of in the perfect position. You're yeah. in between them both. And I suppose it's quite digital, the work that you do, so you don't oh, have to be physically somewhere to actually do the work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I rarely have to go to Sydney or Melbourne now for, for work. When I first started working remotely, I would have to go a few times per project. So we'd go, go a couple of times at the beginning, maybe somewhere midway through to do to show the director some works in progress and then for the end to finish finish off. But now, more and more, I'm, I'm not having the trouble at all. Um, and, and it sort of depends on the scale of the project too and their budget. But um, yeah, I can almost get away working remotely. And I've been doing a few uh, virtual reality projects lately and they've been done completely remotely. Well, this is it. I was going to say, sort of working, the way working is going in the future is a lot of opportunity for remote working. But speaking of the future, virtual reality is something that to a person like me, I think of someone standing in a lab with some big goggles on and suddenly they're transported to an alternate reality. But what is it really? I, you know, and how can it really be applied? What's the work you're doing with virtual reality? Okay, so I've done a, cu a couple of projects. So, I mean, virtual reality is probably one technology that's coming out now. So there's a whole bunch of these technologies. There's augmented reality. So most people would know that from the Pokemon Go uh, game that came out. Yeah, that was and huge. Yeah, and there's mixed reality and extended reality. So there's all these new realities. So essentially what's going on is using basically digital visualization and sound and incorporating that into your real-world scenario. And, you know, in an ideal world, having you interact between your real world and this digital world. So virtual reality basically puts you 100% into the digital world, so you're immersed visually and orally in, into an alternate universe, I suppose you could say. So one of the first projects I did was working on uh, a project where we were trying to create empathy 
for refugees um, growing up in war-torn Syria. And essentially you're walking their shoes down those war-torn streets. And that sort of progressed now to a couple of other projects. So one of my research projects at the moment is looking at how we can use these technologies for the visually and hearing impaired. So for empathy, for training and for education. And that's, I think that's where I see the technology. I mean, you know, all the films are doing little scenes in virtual reality where you get to play the character in, the, in a particular scene and you can interact with particular objects. So one that comes to mind is the animated film Coco, mm-hmm. where you play the lead character and you can go through you know, a couple of the scenes of the film and, and interact as if you are that main character. Um, it's almost but, like when you were a kid and you read Choose Your Own Adventure books yeah. and you could pick what was going to yeah. happen. It was that way of participating in the creative yeah. finished product in a way. It's yeah. fascinating about the empathy side of things for refugees because it's so true that you just it's not real to you until you experience it yourself. Did you find when you were working on that project that people came out with a, a different feeling about it? Did it encourage that empathy? I think it did to, to an extent, but this is an early VR project, so at that point people were still probably more blown away by the fact that they could step into that world. And the story was almost secondary because they're like, oh, well, I've never experienced virtual reality before. I didn't mm-hmm. know you could, you know, this is how it worked. But now that virtual reality has been around for a little while, it would probably have a different effect on people because there wouldn't be so much about the technology involved but more about the story. And I think that's where creators are trying to get as well with their stories is we, we almost don't care about the tech. The tech's always going to change and in fact it's, you know, it's changing so quick that it's hard to keep track of. But if we're making these disengaging content then it doesn't really matter and we want, we want the participant to engage with the content. And I think that's where these new realities are coming into their own is all of a sudden you're not a passive viewer, you're actually an active participant. You get to interact with the environment. So, you know, if it's a simulation or training, it's, it's going to be ideal. I mean, you could go into a virtual science lab and mix up your chemicals and see the results without having to actually, you know, handle hazardous material. Yeah, and without potentially blowing something up by accident, yep. which yep. is always yep. good. So it's a, it's sort of a risk-averse way of going about it as well while still building those skills. And so you mentioned using VR for, I think, hearing impairments. And how would that work? So that's one of my projects I'm working on at the moment. So I'm looking at how we can use the technology for a few different ways. One of them, again, is empathy, so that you can mainly for partners of people who may have um, an impairment. So what, what does it feel like for my partner to be living their day in this particular way? Well, you know, jump into this alternative universe and experience what what they're doing. Um, so that, that that's the project I'm working on at the moment is basically recreating that that world where we've got we've got a house and a busy street and a shop and you've got to basically navigate from one to the other. Oh, I mean, that would, and even for people's carers, I'm imagining potentially there would be application for your project and the outcomes of that research across potentially the disability sector as well. And because it's all sensory, I suppose it would apply to hearing impairments. You could use it for sight impairments as well. Yes. Oh, sorry. So, the, so the project I'm doing is both. It's got both of those elements built in. So what we can do is within this one particular project is we can change the level of impairment, you know, from 100% to 0%. And, and, and change different factors regarding that as well. Is it, um, say, in the visual field, is it a narrowing of vision? Is it a darkening of vision? Is it the focus, how that all changes and things like that? And same with the hearing. We can block hearing, change frequencies out, all sorts of things. So your project, you're getting this project up and running or you've started? Yeah, so, uh, we we're in the very early stages of getting up. So it's all planned and we've, we've got it worked out and now it's just a matter of we're, we're actually building it as we speak. So we're probably a few, few months away still. Well, that'll be really exciting when that comes to fruition. Are you looking for partners in that project? Oh, we're always looking for partners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any particular partners you'd be after? 
no, no. We're, um, I mean, we're, look, we're always open to negotiations. And that's, that's the other thing about this particular project. It's more of a pilot to say, hey, this is what we're able to do. So if you've got an idea or a, or a need, then we can tailor on this particular project to, to, to fill a different void. That's right. And would I suppose the outcome of doing this research in this project be that you could improve training across a wide range of industries where empathy is required? That would apply to a lot of different industries, I'd imagine. How do you see your research being, I guess, used? Yeah, so there was sort of, when we first proposed the idea, there were three sort of ideas that I was wanting from it. And one was to be used as a training tool, one as an empathy tool, and one to be used so that we can study. So if someone has an impairment, when we put them in this virtual world, what sort of user data can we get from them so that we can make real-world aids for them in the future? So are they always looking a particular way or are they always turning their head because of audio cues in a particular manner? And, and then looking at how they interact with this world to then potentially build other hardware tools that they can use in the real world. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I wish you all the best with your project. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a lovely chat and I wish you well. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au. Thank you.